Well, thank you very much. I'm very grateful for the invitation and for that very, very generous introduction. Um, neither well-known nor accomplished, but I'm very happy to be here and, for, and very grateful for the invitation. Um, I took a few pictures of you as you were walking in. That's because in my home diocese, I'm particularly fond after Mass to be able to take pictures of the people of God. Uh, one of the things a bishop does a lot is take pictures with folks, which I have no problem with after confirmations and such, but, but uh, it's a great uh, sign of the beauty of the church to me and something I like other people to see uh, how the face of Christ is present in his people assembled. And so I just want to let you know that your picture was taken and it may show up on some Twitter feed at some point. <laughs> Muy bien. Almost everything I preach in the Diocese of Brownsville is bilingual. It's just the way, it's a beautiful part of the world, it's a beautiful part of the country. I encourage you to visit it. Uh, most all of my homilies are partly in English and partly in Spanish, and it just moves with a certain fluidity, almost as, as easily flowing as the Rio Grande River itself. And so, and so I encourage you to, if you have a chance, to come down in, to the south of Texas and, and see the beautiful people amongst whom I am privileged to serve and from whom I learn a great deal especially in the way of the humble Christ in serving other expressions of the presence of the humble of Christ amongst us. Some months ago when I was asked to send the projected title for this lecture, I knew what I wanted to talk about, but I hadn't even sketched it out yet. So I sent the title in, Prophets and Kings Long to See What You See. It's the title I sent, St. Thomas on the Prophetic Character of the Scriptural Revelation. I had in mind at that time putting together some elements of St. Thomas's teaching that I have been thinking about for a number of years now. They were disparate elements in my mind at that time, and the writing has sought to put them into closer relation. I'm grateful for the chance to work on this and, and do a little bit of that putting together. Once I finished writing it though, this last Saturday by the way, I, wrote, I write most of my talks on the iPhone at airports, and then I put it together on my computer. Once I finished, reali I realized that the title I had sent in, while adequate, did not quite name with the succinctness that I would prefer what has emerged. This happens to me a lot when I'm preparing a talk. So I revised the title so as better to name what I offer you this afternoon. Thomas on the literalness of Christ and the interpretation of scripture. And thus, I would say it is true what Pascal says, the last thing one settles in writing a work is what one should put in first. I would like to dedicate this time together to exploring some aspects of St. Thomas's work as a commentator on scripture. This is not a topic often broached in courses on St. Thomas's thought. And if it is discussed, it is usually in a passing nod to Article 10 of the first question of the Summa. Now that is a very fascinating question and article, but I do not think that we can grasp its full significance within the overall aims of the Summa, nor within the overall work of St. Thomas the theologian, without looking at how Thomas actually handled scripture in his lectures and commentaries. It is always good to remember that lecturing on scripture texts was Thomas's main occupation. It was his day job. The Summa was his spare time, as were the Aristotelian commentaries. He never commentated on, that we know of, on Aristotle in public. My modest aim today is to encourage you to look on the commentaries on scripture in order to better understand the vision of St. Thomas. Thomas's vision was profoundly Christological and his Christology was profoundly scriptural. One of the things we will see today is Thomas's keen interest in the literal sense of the scriptures. This must be understood as more than a mere academic or interpretive exercise. It is directly related to the wider ecclesial interest, especially noteworthy in the mendicant movements of the, their interest in the literal following of Christ. This was part of the reform movements of the 12th and 13th centuries and a hallmark of the charismatic influence of both St. Francis and St. Dominic. Number one, the, liter the literalness of Christ the Word. 
I will start with Thomas's commentary on his letter to the Hebrews. His exposition of that letter is a beautiful expression of his robust exegetical mind. It is also a text that's been somewhat neglected by both philosophers and theologians. This may have to do with the fact that within the commentaries on the Pauline corpus, Thomas's commentary on Hebrews presents unique textual difficulties. It is transmitted to us through two different interp interpolations and reports. This is vexing to the reader for reasons I need not go into here, but the first lecture on chapter one, and this is where I wanna spend a few moments, chapter one of the letter to the Hebrews, the received text has Thomas commenting on the following verse. You're familiar with this verse. In times past, God spoke in partial and various ways to our fathers through the prophets. In these last days, he spoke to us through a son whom he made heir of all things and through whom he created the universe. Thomas uses the occasion to explain that God's speaking is first of all, the father's eternal generation of the word. The eternal conceptum is in fact further expressed in three ways. There's always three ways. First in creation. Secondly, in the revelations to the angels, the saints, and the prophets of what lies hidden within the word. And thirdly, in the incarnation itself. Within this threefold movement of expression that issues from the eternal word, only the latter two, Thomas says, revelation and incarnation, have the character of a word, properly speaking. Thomas says explicitly that this is because the latter two are ordered ad manifestationem, towards manifestation. Both are a kind of opening up of what is inside the mind and heart of God, and both are directed to knowers capable of receiving the manifestation. The first expression, he says, namely creation, is not ordered to manifestation, but rather ad esse, to being, and thus, creation does not have the character of a word spoken. It is never said in scripture, St. Thomas notes, that God speaks by creating creatures, but rather that he is known by creating them. Numquam digitur quod Deus loquator creando creaturas, sed quod cognoscatur. Romans 1.20, the invisible things of God are made known. In short, creation is an act of the word, but it is a speaking, let there be light, producing something that's not quite a word. Now think about that. This way of describing reality puts into play the existence of knowers other than God, namely angels and human beings, because even if scripture does not ever say God produced a kind of word by creating creatures, it does say that he is known in this creative act. Creation is capable and in the divine wisdom was meant to convey something beyond itself to other knowers. We might say that this expressive power of created being in the long run is fairly meager. For although it can express beyond itself, it never quite allows us to know the who behind all the what's of creation. When moving from expression to word, Thomas describes how God's speaking ad manifestationem makes known more about the speaker than what his created works can convey. What characterizes this more, made known by words, is the manifestation of God's own interior intentions. This is equivalent to saying that God's speaking to angels and prophets is variously ordered to the knowledge of the divine wisdom, which is in the heart of the Father. Thomas thus preserves the word word as an intentional revelation of a prior intellectual understanding. By its nature interior to the speaker, communicated to another intellectual being. Thomas, not surprisingly, refers in this context to St. Augustine's discussion of the verbum vocis, the word spoken of the voice being a manifestation of the prior verbum cordis, the word of the heart. The incarnation, of course, is the singularly perfect self-expression of the word of the heart of the Father, the verbum cordis. 
What is implicit in this account, unspoken, we could say, is that we human beings are capable of putting words together to describe expressions, that is to say, realities in creation that are not quite words. We put words on them. This is the primordial grandeur of the human creation. Our first words are words about what is. And when it comes to other persons, our words are about who the what is. Apparently, when speaking to human beings, the only way available to God is that of adaptation to our mode of understanding things. And this involves adaptation to the way shown by our own prior exercise of the speaking power, which in turn derives from our interaction with created things and other speaking human beings. But to speak of God, having to adapt to our way of speaking, while true, is not the most fortuitous way to say this. It is more accurate to, accurate to describe Thomas's wisdom here by saying creation was conceived originally in the word, precisely to serve as the gentle medium of God speaking to us about what lies in his heart. The Reverend Cordes. Creation is the language God conveniently uses to address us because he made us word-capable beings who already interact and put words on creation. Thus, the interpersonal use of wordy images to say something to each other makes it possible for God to specify created knowables to say something about himself to us. So think, for example, of Hosea chapter 11. It's a beautiful passage. I'm sure you know it. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, who took them in my arms. I drew them with human cords, with bands of love. I fostered them like one who raises an infant to his cheeks. Yet though I stooped to feed my child, they did not know that I was their healer. We have to have some, have, we have to have had some interaction with chords and bands to understand their relation to love. And we have to have some concept of familial fostering to understand that God is saying something about himself beyond what our human interactions can express or grasp. Again, in the divine wisdom, creation is the medium through which God can speak this word of his heart to us. Which brings us at length now to how St. Thomas describes the incarnation in this context. He reserves a particular phrase for describing the word incarnate, viewed precisely as the word. His coming in the flesh is ordered, St. Thomas says, ad expressam manifestationem. Not just to manifestation, but the expressed manifestation. With delightful austerity of words, Thomas says of the word, et se nobis expresse manifestavit, and he expressly manifests himself to us. The adverb expresse for Thomas implies a kind of literal directness. The adverb, and we will see this word again later in the course of this lecture, God expressed himself literally. Jesus is the historical, literal expression of the divine wisdom. Thus, it is essential to Catholic Christology to profess that the second person of the Trinity literally acts and expresses himself through his sanctified humanity. Thus, for example, when scripture says, Jesus was angry at the hardness of heart of the Pharisees, it is true to say that God's anger was literally manifested in and through the Son's humanity. Traduxit se nobis, we could say. God translated himself to us in a language we could understand. And that literal language is the humanity of the Son. Human nature is a created expression of image and likeness. But by the incarnation, the human creation is elevated to become a word. It says something about the heart of God. And the concrete human nature of Christ becomes the word addressed by God to us. Indeed, the whole of Christ's living, dying, and rising, the acta et passa mentioned in the Summa, 
is creation becoming the most expressive literal word from God to us. Literal word. In short, we could say that neither things nor persons could ever tell us how much love sustains the existence of all that is, were it not for the word made flesh, who in the flesh and in time literally showed us his heart. Number two, a little bit of a detective mystery here, a literal sense controversy. At this point, so hold on to that from Hebrews, somewhere in the back of your memory. At this point, I would draw your attention to St. Thomas's commentary on the Psalms, probably the last work of his teaching life. The prologue to this commentary shows us Thomas devoting not a little time and effort to deal with an errant understanding of the literal sense of scripture. I hope to show that his interest here is directly related to protecting the literalness of Christ's teaching and example and to accounting for the Old Testament as primarily prophetic and intentionally preparatory for Christ's coming. The principal antagonist in this dense discussion of St. Thomas in the commentary on the Psalms, this discussion of an erroneous expositional procedure is Theodore of Mopsuestia. So St. Thomas says the following. I would note here, Thomas uses the word heresy in this line, in this, which is very rare for him. Very rare. He doesn't throw that word around at all. Anyway, St. Thomas says, Concerning the mode of exposition, it must be noted that in the Psalms, as in the exposition of the other prophets, we ought to avoid one error condemned in the Fifth Synod. Theodore of Mopsuestia, indeed, said that in sacred scripture and the prophets, nothing is expressly said of Christ. But rather, these words were said about certain other things and in fact, they, these words said about other things, adapted to Christ. Like, for example, the text from Psalm 21, they divided amongst themselves my vestments, etc., is said, according to Theodore, not about Christ, but literally about David. This mode of exposition was condemned in that council, and whoever asserts such a thing in expounding the scriptures is a heretic. Now, then, this is fascinating. Theodore of Mopsuestia, who lived centuries before in the patristic age, Theodore of Mopsuestia's teaching on scriptural interpretation was sparsely and vaguely known in Thomas's time. In fact, after a little detective work, I think Thomas may be the first theologian of a high Middle Ages to reference this teaching at all or in such detail. His references to it were likely made possible by his personal quest for reliable text stemming from the patristic period that personal quest is well attested to in the abundant citations of the Greek fathers in such works as the Catena Aurea, the Contra Errorum Graecorum, and the Summa Theologiae itself. Some of the texts he probably saw were Greek texts recently translated into Latin, others older texts, Latin translations discovered in some monastic, papal, or episcopal archive. In addition to the description of Theodore in the commentary in the Psalms, Thomas also references Theodore's error in his exposition of the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of John, both late commentaries. In other words, Thomas's awareness of and his concerns about Theodore Mopsuestia are late elements in his teaching career. You won't find it in the Summa. And certainly not in the commentary on the census. Much earlier. The reference to the determinations of the Fifth Synod, that's how he describes it, clearly describes the authority of the question at hand with the Second Council of Constantinople. That's 553. Thomas likely reviewed documents surrounding Constantinople II and documents prepared by Pope Vigilius back then, both before and after the Council's decrees. It's important to kind of know what he's trying to look, what we think he's looking at, because we, we, we don't know for sure. 
In addition to the acta of the council with his accomp the accompanying excerpts from Theodore's writings, the Latin tradition preserved particular texts of Theodore of Mopsuestia's writings about the prophets together with a point-by-point -point anathema by Pope Vigilius in the Constitutum Vigilii. In the history leading up to the council, Vigilius's constitution was issued by the Pope in 553 in an effort to condemn certain errors of Theodore's writings without condemning him personally in posthumous fashion. Rome didn't like condemning dead people. Apparently, Constantinople II had no scruple about this. The council did, in fact, condemn him posthumously and anathematized the writings. The pope subsequently recognized the council's decrees. The constitution of Pope Vigilius contains some 60 Latin excerpts from the writings of Theodore and includes texts from his notes on particular psalm verses. I'm convinced this is what Thomas saw. The Latin texts certainly derive from the same source as those contained in the Council's Acta. Leoncius of Byzantium is recognized as the translator. The Constitution of Vigilius proves singularly important, however, because the Pope offers a point-by-point -point explication and condemnation of Theodore's text, something not found in the conciliar decrees themselves. Similarities between the Pope's characterization of the texts of Theodore that he's looking at and Thomas's characterization of Th Theodore's error on adaptation can be discerned if you look kind of at the text and look at the words and so forth. It's all in the words. To go into this discernible similarity, however, would be a much different and much longer lecture. So, so look at the footnotes. I'll show you there. Anyway, for our purposes, the error attributed to Theodore involves two major problems. First, that he denied the prophets ever intended to say anything literally about Christ. And Thomas describes it, nihil expresse dicitur, nothing is expressly said. To say this, in terms related to what we saw earlier in the commentary just now on Hebrews, we can put it this way, that the problem with Theodore's teaching is nothing was expressly said in the Old Testament about the one who is the incarnate and thus expressly manifested word of the Father. This is the error. As you can imagine, this undermines any understanding of the Old Testament as words from the word, preparing for the words expressed manifestation. Thus, Theodore accounts for New Testament references to the prophets as a work of textual adaptation. Adaptation is a bad word for Thomas. If it is used to describe how Old Testament texts can be made to refer to New Testament realities, what is adaptation? The short answer is that it implies that the Old Testament authors did not intend to refer to New Testament things. Rather, New Testament authors appropriated the words at will and they made them fit. Now Thomas, this is very, this fascinates me. Maybe it doesn't fascinate you, but it fascinates me, so here we are. <laughs> Thomas gives an interesting elaboration on this point that is adaptation, that is appropriating the words apart. Um, actually, in his commentary on Matthew, now he doesn't go into it in the Psalms, but on Matthew, he kind of elaborates a little bit. And this is probably his earliest reference to Theodore of Mopsuestia, the exegete. And in, in the commentary on Matthew, Thomas says the following about what adaptation means, why it's a bad word. And so in the commentary on Matthew, Thomas says, and another was the error of Theodore saying that nothing of those things which are brought forth from the Old Testament are literally said about Christ, but they are adapted. As, for example, when they bring forth... Now, quick turn here, so pay attention. As, for example, when they bring forth that text of Virgil, from the Aeneid he's quoting, Recalling such things, he hung suspended and affixed he remained. Now this text of Virgil is adapted concerning Christ. He knows something we don't. He knows that there's a tradition out there that takes a certain text out of Virgil. And it's because it sounds like affixed and that sort of that it refers to the cross. And so it's adapt that's adaptation but he just references it in passing. As those people who say Virgil were speaking of Christ when he said, right, that's what, he, that's what that little line is about. 
And next, it is said that the text of Matthew, that when the prophet says, and the evangelist says, this was said that it might be fulfilled, like the virgin shall be with child. This was said to fulfill what the prophet had said. That's the, that's the language of the New Testament. That this kind of citation ought to be thus exposed as if the evangelists were saying that this can be adapted, this can be made to fit, this can be adjusted away from the intention of the author. Against this kind of error can be adduced the text from the last chapter of St. Luke, and he quotes St. Luke, it was fitting that all those things which are written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms about me, this is Jesus speaking, be fulfilled. In other words, he pulls from authority of St. Luke to basically say this is just the wrong way to look at how the New Testament cites the Old Testament. It's not adaptation. This is fulfillment, and Jesus himself said this was about me. Yesterday's gospel, these words are fulfilled in your hearing. Now, stick with me, stick with me. Thomas is saying that adaptation involves appropriating words away from the author's intention, like when some people read in the Aeneid that in Kesis's statement, pendebat et fixusque, he hung and was affixed, can be applied to Christ. What is this Anchises thing? The Aeneid. A French scholar, Martin Morrod, has identified where Thomas gets this example. Thomas seems to be making a passing reference, probably from memory, to a letter from St. Jerome to Paulinus of Nola. And in that letter, St. Jerome rebukes those who manipulate a classical pagan text to make it refer to Christ. The following appears in St. Jerome's letter 53 to Paulinus. This is St. Jerome. Those who come boldly to the sacred scriptures after having studied secular letters, whatever might be said there, they think to be the law of God. Jerome was like a little bit on the testy side. Nor do these people think it worthwhile what the prophets or what the apostles think. Rather, they fit, aptant, they fit the incongruous testimonies of the pagan text to their own sense, as if this is a great thing and not a most vicious thing to deprive a way of speaking of its sense and to drag a writing according to their own will to a repugnant sense, as if we could not read Homeric verses or Vigilian verses and not also call Moronus a Christian without Christ. Just because Virgil wrote, the words of the Savior on the cross, talia perstabat memorans fixusque manavit. And then Jerome concludes, these are childish things and similar to a game of circles. Now, stop. Interestingly, Jerome's letter censures the adaptations of who? Proba. Proba, the well-known Roman matron and convert who received many, many long letters from St. Augustine. His letter to her on prayer is in the Office of Readings. But she would adapt this way. This Jerome, pff, I don't care if she has money or not, but you can't do that. Jerome rebukes any attempt to offer as legitimate a reading of a secular text which prescinds completely from the intention of the author. This is the point. The activity is an active one, involving imposing by will of the reader something at variance with the original author's intentional use of words. That's why it's not permissible. You can't awor adapt words that way. Jerome, of course, knows the context of Anchises' statement and is quite sure that there is no intention to speak even in a vague way about the crucifixion. Thus, for Jerome, the practice of reading Virgil in this way involves a refiguration of the word's contextual sense away from what Virgil intended, Anchises' resoluteness. And the words used by Virgil take on a significantly different meaning through a complete transfer of context. Through this example, Thomas understands that adaptation involves a radical manipulation of words based upon verbal ambiguity and the equivocal use of language. When they, and this is what he says back in the commentary on Matthew, when they adjust the text of Virgil 
to signify something about Christ, they do something at variance with what Virgil himself intended to signify through the words. The text is adjusted with no real reference to what the poet intended. To say, therefore, that the apostles and the evangelists adapted prophetic texts to Christ implicates them in a falsification of textual integrity of the kind Jerome attributed to Proba and her circle. Are you with me? Sure you are. Good. Excellent. Because sometimes I'm not sure I'm with me, but there it is. Okay, so clearly, a scriptural reader, and in this case the apostles, cannot expose a prior prophetic text by prescinding from the intention of the Old Testament author. You can't do that. To do so does violence to the text because it separates the words from the things the author wanted to talk about. And here's the point. When the New Testament speaks of the prophets, it cannot be doing so in the way Jerome ascribes to childish Roman matrons reading Christ into Virgil. So what are the New Testament authors doing when they quote the Old Testament and use the common New Testament phrase, this was to fulfill what was said by the words of the prophet? And that's when, to answer that question, Thomas refers to Luke 24, against which can be adduced the text from the last chapter of Luke, it was fitting that all these things which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms about me, Jesus says, be fulfilled. And thus, and this is continuing on the Matthew commentary, Thomas goes on, it should be known that in the Old Testament there are certain things which refer to Christ and are said about him alone like that which says, Behold, and a virgin shall conceive, and the womb and bear a son. And also that text from Psalm 21, God, my God, look upon me, why have you forsaken me? And anyone, if anyone should put a different literal sense on these two texts, he would be a heretic. And the heresy is condemned. Again, I say, it's very rare for Thomas to use such hard language. The sense of the citation moves the argument to another level. Matthew could not have intended to say the text can thus be adapted because he only conveyed what he learned from Christ, namely that all these things written in the law and the prophets were written about Christ, about himself. The argument against Theodore thus is reduced to a Christological error. The Lord Jesus knows what the intentions of the Old Testament authors are, and it is his knowledge confided to the authors of the New Testament that sustains the propriety of New Testament citation of the Old Testament. It is the literal historicity of the word made flesh, expresse se manifestavit, the one who spoke through the prophets prior to his incarnation, that gives the apostles and the church access to Old Testament intentions. You can't just take the words and make them fit. Number three, and there's only four, folks. The rule of St. Jerome. Uh, Jerome comes back. Thomas relies on Jerome a lot. He loves Augustine, but when it comes to scripture interpretation, he goes to Jerome. After addressing the error attributed to Theodore of Mopsuestia, Thomas turns in the same Psalms commentary, Thomas turns to a principle of exposition he calls the rule of St. Jerome. Bear with me, it's a fairly lengthy thing, but it's, it's a text. I don't know if you can even find it in English anywhere, so here it is. It's better you hear Thomas than me, so here it is. This is from the commentary on the Psalms. This is after he talks about, Jer about Theodore, no, and Esonosiasse. You don't do what Theodore says. Blessed Jerome, therefore, in his commentary on Ezekiel, handed on to us a rule which we will use in the Psalms, namely that concerning things done, they are to express, be, expre be exposed thus, as figuring something about Christ or the church. As indeed it is said in 1 Corinthians 10, all these things happen to them in figure. Prophecies, moreover, were sometimes said about things which were of the time then, 
but the prophecies were not primarily said about those things, but in fact the prophecies were said about future things. And thus the Holy Spirit ordered that when such things are said, certain things are inserted which exceed the condition of that thing done, so that the soul might be raised to the thing figured. Like, for example, in the book of Daniel, many things are said about Antiochus in the figure of the Antichrist. Hence, these certain things are read, which are there in that place, certain things are read which were not completed in Antiochus. They will be fulfilled, indeed, in the Antichrist himself. And also certain things are read about the kingdom of David and of Solomon, which were not to be fulfilled in the reign of such men, but were to be fulfilled in the kingdom of Christ, in whose figure they were said. As, for example, in Psalm 71, God give your judgment, which is according to the title about the kingdom of David and Solomon, and the author places some things in that text which exceeds its capacity, namely, justice will arise in his days and abundance of peace until the moon be taken away, and again he will rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And these things did not happen in Solomon's time. Therefore, this psalm is expounded about the reign of Solomon only inasmuch as it is a figure of the reign of Christ in which all the things there said will be fulfilled. Yeah, now then. This proposed rule has two distinct parts and is designed to counter Theodore's principal error by recasting the issue of signification. Thomas here aims to address the wider issue of authorial intent by discussing how both the words and the deeds in the Old Testament intentionally refer to realities in the New Testament. He explicitly links this account to the tradition of the fathers, specifically to the authority of St. Jerome. The mode of exposition appropriate to the sacred text, therefore, has its own kind of authority rooted in Thomas's sense of the custom of the church. Thomas works here to integrate the newly discovered determinations of Constantinople II into the already developed tradition of Latin scriptural exposition. He's working in his mind to put these things together. By way of quick summary, the rule of St. Jerome, we should first note that not every signifier in the Old Testament signifies the new through the literal sense. The Pauline teaching in 1 Corinthians 10, all these things happen to them in figure, opens the issue by noting that the great bulk of pre-New Testament canon is a narrative of literal history and is embedded in the history. As the history of Israel unfolds, the history itself aims to Christ, and at the same time, the history figures his identity and his mission. The general figuration is prophetic and applies to the literal history itself and applies to the whole of the Old Testament. This is what we would call the classic spiritual sense of the text. Persons and events in the Old Testament bear an anticipatory likeness and similarity to New Testament persons and events. Thus, to give you an example, the literal accounts of Moses interceding with God for Israel's sake after the little incident with the golden calf literally and historically prepares for Christ's coming by divine pedagogical action at the time. God, after all, desires a people free from idolatry. And this in itself, the historical moment then, is itself preparing for Christ. Yet, the history also prefigures what Christ's mission will entail. Christ, the mediator, once revealed, is revealed to have been figured in Moses. The text is literally intended of Moses, and Moses himself figures, shows likeness to the coming of Christ, the mediator, who will throw himself in front of the Father for the sake of his people. This initial general principle encompasses the whole of the intentional signification found in the Old Testament and the things done, that is to say, the entirety of those, the res, recounted in the Old Testament. The articulation accounts for the relation of res, that is thing to figure, and to thing figured, Moses to Christ's correspondence, and establishes through the Lord God's expansive and significant accommodation of history towards the incarnation. Here's the thing. The Old Testament is, in the New Testament, it's not about taking words and accommodating them, making them fit. The one who does the accommodating is God who moves history to mean something. God is the accommodator, not us, the interpreters. The rule of St. Jerome, though, extends also to address prophetic events, 
in, discor in discourses that have both an Old Testament referent and a literal sense extending to Christ. And here it gets a little tricky. I am persuaded that in the received text of Thomas's commentary in the Psalms, when it says, when Thomas refers to Jerome on Ezekiel, is actually not right. The note taker didn't hear right, or something didn't go, because something's not right there, because there's not a single other reference in all of Thomas's writings to, to, to Jerome on Ezekiel. There is many a reference to Jerome on Hosea on this issue, so will. So when Thomas says, for example, prophecies were sometimes said about things which were of the time, that is historical things that happened back then, but the prophecies were not primarily said about those things, but in fact, they were said inasmuch as they are figures of future things. He's trying to protect the intentionality of the words. This corresponds to something St. Jerome says in his commentary on Hosea, verse 3. Jerome says, the prophets promised about the coming of Christ after many centuries and the calling of the Gentiles in this way, that is, talking to their own people, in order that they may not overlook their own present time, lest they seem not to teach the convoked assembly of their time about these things that occur, but instead seem to neglect their own present and rejoice about obscure and future things. The prophets spoke to the people of the time but their words carried a signification into the future. This God can do. This particular text from Jerome focuses specifically upon the prophet's intention to signify both the present historical res and the future historical reality with the same words. Jerome on Hosea Chapter 1, verse 3, in fact, enunciates a principle quite decisive in determining how to expose the prophetic texts that involve reference to Old Testament and yet are understood by the New Testament as literally referring to Christ. To do justice to Old Testament history and to avoid the error of Theodore, Thomas thus articulates a specific principle by which this kind of signification can be discerned in the text. Call it the principle of exceeded conditions speaking summarily, if the words attendant to the Old Testament history exceed the condition of the history itself, then the exceeded description itself extends to the application literally to later realities. Thomas's intention here is to permit this aspect of Jerome's rule to counter Theodore's errant nihil, expresse dicitur, about the Old Testament, in a way that allows both for a literal reference to Christ, yet does not altogether preclude a genuine Old Testament historical thing at play in the prophecy. The verbal description exceeding the condition of an Old Testament reality, however, corresponds more exactly to that which the history figures in the future. This does not, however, suggest that the figure is itself superfluous to the mode of signification. For one thing, Solomon or Antiochus do not cease being historical people, simply because they are presented to us on occasion through exceeded descriptions designed to set in relief how they fall short of the future reality. The immediate historical res addressed by the prophet requires the expositor's attention because without knowledge of it, that is, if you don't know the history, the very fact that the prophetic description exceeds the context would escape your notice. That the prophetic description does in fact exceed the condition of the earlier history indicates to the reader that the litera, that is the letter of the description, at least in those parts exceeding the local circumstance, intentionally signify New Testament history expresse through the words. By means of this kind of inspection of the words and the Old Testament thing, discernment of expresse and ad literam signification becomes possible for us. In the end, this is Thomas's most sophisticated analysis of textual signification. It, it amplifies the traditional category according to literal and spiritual senses, for it contains elements of both. The Old Testament history signifies, but the description expressly points beyond to the future. And that's the literal sense. So why does Thomas think it necessary to expand the discussion of Theodore's error beyond the immediate affirmation that some Old Testament texts do in fact signify Christ ad literam, expresse? 
Partly, I think, because Thomas understands Theodore to have focused his interpretation of the Old Testament text solely in terms of the immediate historical context surrounding the articulated words. There appears to be, in Theodore, no room for any other kind of signification. For example, in Psalm 21, either David spoke about his persecution by Absalom or he spoke about Christ. Since for Theodore, it is obvious that David had Absalom on his mind when composing Psalm 21, it could not be that Christ is understood as the literal sense, except through adaptation. And we all know that's a bad word. Theodore views Old Testament intentionality to be confined to one historical thing only. This is the problem. Theodore thus sounds to Thomas like a strict Aristotelian when it comes to textual signification. Indeed, Theodore sounds a lot like the fifth objector in Quad Libetum 7, Question 6, Article 1, which he wrote much earlier. That is to say, an Aristotelian that cannot admit of more than one single referent per signifier. Thomas dealt then, the late 1250s, with the issue by noting that Jerome on Hosea 1.3 rightly says that nothing prohibits a single deed or thing from having several related senses inasmuch as one is the figure of the other. This is how traditional exegesis, Catholic exegesis, gets around Aristotelian hermeneutics and its focus on one referent, one signifier. But if one is the figure of the other, you can have many senses, all related, all within the intention, because God can modify history to mean something. Well, ironically, Theodore reads Psalm 21 the way Jerome says Virgil should be read solely in terms of the immediate historical context and intentionality. The point Thomas makes, though, is that the Christian cannot read Isaiah or David the way Jerome reads Virgil, for the simple reason that God can do what Virgil cannot, namely, accommodate history to signify his intentions. Related figurative senses are present in the thing described. Thus, Theodore, in addition to having erred in his appreciation for the intentionality of prophetic texts uttered about Christ alone, also lacks, an, also lacks an understanding of the unified intentionality governing the whole of the Old Testament aimed towards Christ. Doubtless, Thomas saw Theodore's reading of Scripture as ultimately rooted in a Christological error. Theodore has no room for a real relation between the deeds of the Old Testament and the deeds of the New, and he has no room for the intentional governance of history by the Word. Number four. Number four, Christ in figure and the figure in Christ. Figuration is an essential element within scriptural tradition and in the Catholic tradition particularly of scriptural interpretation. Figuration is built in the scriptural self-understanding itself. It concerns events that are intelligible in light of other events. Moses with his arms upheld, Israel with unmoistened foot, as at Meribah when they hardened their hearts, references that immediately begin to interpret the moment you're living. The Old Testament itself depends on these kinds of historical invocations in order to understand later historical moments. In the last books of the Old Testament, the invocation of the Exodus event is remarkably nuanced and they interpret the later moments of Israel's history and expand Israel's perception of the meaning of Israel's foundational historical events. Later events are figured in the foundational event. The word who authored the first event guides the later prophetic tradition to its figurative implications. The self-understanding of the New Testament reads the prior figurative tradition as brought to clarity in the Paschal mystery of Christ. At the Easter Vigil, this interpretive dynamic is on full display. Now then, throughout the commentary on the Psalms, Thomas respects and shows remarkable dexterity in locating or in wanting to locate the historical references of the Psalms. The history is very important to him. 
anything from the Exodus to troubles with Absalom, thanksgiving for victory in battle, to psalms composed to accompany cultic worship, whatever it is, after locating the history, Thomas then usually goes on to read those events as prefiguring something having to do with Christ. We could call this a discernment of the classical spiritual sense of the text. This is not an exercise in seeking out fanciful allegories. Rather, it is rooted in a pre-critical theological conviction that Israel's history was governed by a special providence, a grace that orders its signification in ways that are anticipatory of the final revelation of God's historical intent in Christ. Expresse manifestavit se. He expressly reveals it. This serves as the basis for a Christian reading of the Psalms that respects the history of the psalmist. Figuration of this tradition, and here I must insist, Thomas is very much in the spirit of the fathers, is rooted in history. You see, figuration is rooted in history, not in the words. In events understood a certain way, and not in poetic illusion. So what does it really mean to say that there is a literal historical New Testament sense in Old Testament prophecy, prophecy which also inverves, inverves, involves reference to Old Testament historical events? <laughs> to get a sense of Thomas on this question, I think we have to look, finally, at Psalm 21 in his commentary, the Passion Psalm, cited by Christ himself on the cross. Exposing the text, Thomas will not say, that the history of David's sufferings are expressed as a prefiguration of Christ. He will not say that. Nor will he allow that the literal sense refers to David and the spiritual sense refers to Christ. He will not allow that. Given all we have seen in his treatment of Theodore of Mopsuesti and the rule of St. Jerome, this should not surprise us. This is what Thomas says about Psalm 21. As was said above, as in the other prophets, also, this one treats of certain things then present inasmuch as those things were figures of Christ and which pertain to the prophecy itself. And thus, sometimes, some things are put forth in the text which pertain to Christ, which exceed, so to speak, the condition of the history. And among others, specifically, this psalm treats about the passion of Christ. And thus, this is the literal sense. And specifically, he spoke this psalm in the Passion when he cried out, Eli, Eli, yama sabachthani, which is the same as, of God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And thus, granted this psalm is said figuratively about David, nevertheless, specifically, it refers to Christ literally. And in the Synod, a certain Theodore of Mopsuestia, who exposed this psalm about David, ad literam, was condemned. And he was condemned on account of this and many other things. And thus this psalm is to be expressed about Christ, ad literam. Thomas explicitly places the issue of Psalm 21 within the same context governing the Psalm 71 in the prologue to the Psalter. Both involve discerning the words which describe the realities exceeding the immediate historical condition. Neither text can be exposed primarily about the Old Testament figure. The history narrated in the psalm is not about David. It's about Christ. This is its literal sense. On this reading, David, the psalmist, has a vision. This is how it works. David has a vision of the passion. And he wrote of it. The psalmist's own suffering. David is suffering. He, does, he doesn't deny that, that David is suffering because Absalom is a, is, is a troublesome son. He's not denying that. He, the psalmist's own sufferings are secondarily referenced in the psalm, but only to the extent they are figured within Christ's sufferings, and that's what David saw. David saw himself in Christ. He did not see Christ in himself. Now then, you may think this is a distinction without a difference, but in fact, it sustains a whole Catholic understanding of spiritual, spiritual progress. It is more perfect to see oneself figured in Christ than it is to see Christ figured in oneself. This is because Christ is the supreme locus of intelligibility, and I understand myself better if I see myself figured in him. 
This is the distinction Thomas wishes to preserve. Israel's history prefigures New Testament events, yet the prophets had moments of an imaginative vision with understanding, and they saw from afar the Christian history. They read the contemporary events they lived, figured in the history of the Christ they saw. Thus, prophets and kings longed to see what you see, but did not see it. Thomas is a theological witness to a truth of the Catholic faith, namely that after the full revelation of Christ's historical appearance, the church has access to the aim of all of history. All the faithful now have the capacity by spiritual instinct and knowledge of the gospel to see themselves figured in Christ. This, together with the gift of the Spirit, guides our reception of the history of Christ, is what is new about the New Testament. And this is why the fathers of the church, following St. Paul, call the definitive revelation in Christ an unveiling, a final showing. What is unveiled? The aim of human living and all history. This is the given in the tradition, which witnesses to what Pope Benedict when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, called the laying bare of the intelligibility of history by the revelation of its end in Christ. Expresse, literally, he has expressly manifested himself, and in him, the full intentionality of human history. For us, who live after the foundational events of the Christian revelation, the figurations are clearer, though not perfectly so. For after all, the enigmas of the apocalypse will remain until the end. Thomas understands this unveiling as a supreme intelligible, precisely in the terms we saw at the outset, namely expresse manifestavitse, the incarnation. The eternally generated word in the flesh literally and historically expresses what every human life and what all history is really about. What Thomas does here in exposing the text of Psalm 21 is literally about Christ and figuratively about David, effectively reversing the ordinary way of exp explicating figuration, is grant to David a perspective of vision that is equivalent to our own, because we have seen. We know the history of Christ as literal history, and we can see ourselves in it, or at least we should try. Only in this context does the full theological weight of the spiritual or figurative sense of scripture appear. In the literality of Christ, the prior governance of Israel's history is finally understood. This unveiling guides us to the right reading, not just of the books of the Old Testament, but of the history itself. Thomas occasionally uses the term allegory when referring to spiritual reading of the Old Text, but he refers to the term, he prefers the word mystice. The mystical sense is what is figured within the literal history of Christ. Thus, to state the matter briefly, the ecclesiological sense of a text is the figure of the church present in the person of Christ. The moral sense of a text is the norm of Christian living in the, presence of, in the person of Christ himself, his actions. And the eschatological sense is the destiny of the, of, of the Christ as anticipatory of our destiny and the destiny of the human race. But it's all in Christ, the express word. Thus, I will conclude by saying that the transparency of the ecclesial tradition of reading scripture is transparent particularly for us in the Eucharistic sacrifice itself. In the sacred liturgy, the sacramental representation of the historical founding event of the passion, death, and resurrection of the Lord comes after the reading of the scriptures. This is not like accidental. We didn't know where to put it. The paschal sacrifice is positioned to unveil the fundamental ratio through which the scriptures just read are rightly understood. The literal body of Christ appears on the altar after the worded scriptural explication, just as the incarnation follows and clarifies the prior scriptural pedagogy. It's and yet, the scriptures read prior to the Eucharistic sacrifice guide our understanding of what is about to be enacted. Just as the scriptural record prepares the way for faith in the incarnation, it is a reciprocal pedagogy of grace. Words and the word. The word and the words. What concerns Thomas throughout this discussion of scriptural signification is accounting theologically 
for how this cohesive reciprocating movement towards the literal expressiveness of God in Christ happens textually and historically. Christian liturgy and theology breathes a figuration or it dies. Figuration flows to Christ and flows from him. And the root of all figurative meaning is the literal gospel history of Christ culminating in the cross. The cross is the supreme intelligible of God's heart. It is both plainly visible, at the same time a kind of brightness that comes to us under a cover of darkness. The Christological truth revealed in scripture and enacted, made plain, made present in the Eucharistic intervention is the basis for understanding rightly all subsequent figurative readings, be they moral, ecclesial, or eschatological. And the aim is that we see ourselves figured there, within Christ, thus plainly manifested to us. Expresse se manifestabit. There is no further word that God will say that is not already in the literalness of Christ in the flesh. Of the Eucharist, as of the Incarnation itself, we can truly say he has expressly shown himself to us. Thank you for your kind attention.